Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, uh, July the 9th, 2022. A few years ago, I wrote a book called How to Fix the Future. We all, of course, want to fix the future. Uh, most of us can't really figure out how. I'm not sure I have a much better idea than anyone else. And you create a series of buckets for fixing the future. I created five. Four made sense. And the fifth was a kind of add-on. And it focused on education. Because, of course, when you want to fix the future, you always think of education. It's a, almost a joke, a rather sad joke, that uh, when we don't know how to fix the future, we throw it at the schools, we throw it at teachers who are already overwhelmed with stuff going on, particularly in America, which um, has a school system underfunded in lots of different political, economic, cultural crises. This has come up recently also on my show. Of course, we have endless conversations about how to heal the digital fever of misinformation and lies. I had a German guest on the show uh, the author of a book called Digital Fever, called um, Bernard Perkson, a German academic who suggests that we can just send journalists into the schools to teach something called editorial society. I meant well, of course, but it seemed absurd. Um, a month or two ago, I had a more of a global thinker, Charlie Robertson, a London-based investment guy on the phone uh, on the show, talking about. Curing global poverty, and of course, what he called for was not just more electricity, but more education. He has an interesting new book out, the, Tri the Time Traveling Economist: Why Education, Electricity, and Fertility Are Key to Escaping Poverty. I don't think people like Robertson or Perkson or myself are wrong about education, but the problem is, is that we throw we throw everything at it without throw everything at education without really understanding the implications. My guest today is the author of an interesting new book, a critical book about education policy, and perhaps the kind of people who see education as the fix to everything. Um, his name is Daniel S. Moak. He's the author of a new book from the New Deal to the War on schools and he's joining us from Idaho today. Daniel, uh, did my introductory monologue, did it, um, did it uh, resonate with you? Are there many people out there who always seem to think that whatever the problem with the world, education can fix it? Yes, uh, I think that is broadly uh, sort of my, my argument in the book. And I guess one of the things that was really interesting to me was to try and figure out, well, where did this come from? Because this has not always been the way that we've thought about or talked about education, uh, particularly in the United States, which is the focus of this book. And so one of the things that I wanted to do is how did we get to this idea that education in particular in the United States could solve things like poverty, uh, income inequality, racial inequality. And uh, I really go back to early educational debates in the 20th century, uh, where we had remarkably different visions of what the function and purpose of education 
should be uh, and sort of follow uh, those debates until they ultimately get settled in favor of uh, sort of what you describe, which I think is this idea that education is a sort of panacea to all of these social problems. Uh, and I think this has interesting implications because uh, my focus is on the federal education state. So when we're talking in the United States, it's really the first time that the federal government becomes strongly involved in the education system is in 1965 with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And this is an act that is at the height of the Great Society. Yeah, slow down, Daniel. Let's just be clear. This is one of the key acts in your book, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. It was passed by Lyndon Johnson for people watching. Yes, Here we that's have exactly right. Johnson yeah, it's uh, his, uh, an act that... Yeah, with his... Uh, I just want to show this. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely photo, which perhaps captures uh, the spirit of the times. Johnson signing this uh, big piece of legislation with his childhood school teacher, Miss Kate Dedrick Looney. Um, we all tend to uh, idealize perhaps the people who taught us, but go on, Daniel. Yes, that's exactly right. That's such a great picture. It's actually taken in front of the one room schoolhouse that he attended, I think, first through eighth, eighth grade. Uh, and this, uh, uh, this sort of first major entrance of the federal government into the education system in 19... Uh, the public K through 12 education system in 1965 was premised on the idea uh, that the federal government should step in, provide more funding to uh, states uh, and local education agencies in order to provide equitable opportunity for those that did not have it. Uh, now, this was great. You know, I would never uh, argue that we should not be providing more funding for schools, but I think if we take a step back and contextualize what's also going on in the Democratic Party at this time. Can we, but Daniel, before we do that, can we just take a step back? Um, your book is called From the New Deal to the War on Schools. Many progressives tend to idealize the New Deal. What was the state? I know it's a, it's a rather big question, but maybe you can answer it briefly. What was the state of education under the New Deal? How did FDR change it? How was it? How was it reinvented like so much else in America in the 1930s and 40s? So I think one of the remarkable things about uh, education, the New Deal, is the degree to which uh, the federal government did not step in and change it, uh, in part because what FDR's approach to education was, was primarily through providing funding for infrastructure. So if we want to look at the transformative aspect, you do see a tremendous amount of federal uh, expenditure towards building new schools, uh, hiring new teachers, uh, sort of creating public jobs in the education sector. But in terms of actual uh, sort of curricular or pedagogical approach, the New Deal was largely hands-off in that regard, which is quite- That will probably come as a surprise to both progressives and conservatives, progressives who imagine FDR uh, throwing a lot of money into the school system and conservatives, of course, who would probably instinctively suggest that FDR uh, imposed some sort of ideological or economic control over the education system. Right. And I think one of the, the uh, interesting things is that the federal government largely does not have a footprint in K through 12 education at this, uh, this point, in large part because of uh, a staunch opposition from local uh, education authorities, but also from 
uh, uh, conservative that did not want any sort of federal control of uh, sort of education. Decisions. Yeah, and, and again, Daniel, I, I mean, you know this stuff a million times better than I do, but it's worth reminding everybody that this was a period of um, profound discrimination in the schools, of all sorts of other inequities and injustices. So it goes without saying that this was not an ideal arrangement. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, one of the reasons why you don't see such a uh, big federal imprint on uh, the schools is because of opposition, staunch opposition from uh, Southern politicians who did not want the uh, specter of the federal government stepping in and uh, potentially uh, influencing the racial relations on the local scale. Which right, and we did a show recently with Leslie Fenwick, an education and expert, um, activist, on the legacy of Jim Crow. Uh, she has a new book out, Jim Crow's Pink Slip. I'm sure you're familiar with it. So uh, this is an important piece in this narrative, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think her book is brilliant in sort of tracing the displacement of, of Black educators that happened in the aftermath of the Brown decision. Uh, uh, one thing that uh, is sort of interesting is that uh, one my book focuses on debates within Black uh, progressive educators about how they should pursue uh, education at the federal level. Uh, and on the one hand, you, have, you do have folks like uh, Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP, which are saying there's relatively little prospect for widespread displacement and we need to push for segregation first and foremost. But you also had a, a strong contingent of uh, Black scholars, most notably Oliver Cromwell Cox, Cox, who was saying, look, if we do this, if we pursue education without also having a employment policy for the black teachers and uh, segregated schools at this moment, what we're going to see is widespread displacement. And those concerns were largely pushed into the background uh, with the sort of pursuit of uh, Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP. Well, you've done, um, Dan, you've done a lovely job creating the conditions for LBJ's signing of the ESA um, legislation. What was it and what was it trying to do? And why is this, in your view, such a pivotal moment in the history of American schools in the 20th century? Well, it's quite pivotal because it's the first major expansion of federal power uh, in K through 12 education. And what's important is it's done on a particular ideological basis, which is that uh, schools should be tasked with solving significant problems like uh, income inequality, poverty, and racial inequality. And schools actually can do this. One of the things that's also happening with the Democratic Party at this time is they're moving away from the more robust commitments to public jobs and redistributive taxation that characterized the New Deal coalition. Uh, so while they're still concerned about these issues of poverty, racial inequality, uh, and income inequity, they largely are sort of moving away from the structural analysis and focusing on the individual analysis. And in this moment, education becomes really important because what they begin to say is it's not really about the structure of the broader labor market that determines why somebody has a lot of money and somebody else doesn't. What they begin to say is it's about the skills that you bring to the labor market, you as the individual, something about you internally explains why you have money uh, or why you don't have money. And the way to fix that, uh, sort of allow people to get more money is to change uh, their sort of skill, their internal skills through education. Uh, this is a pretty- We did a show um, with the 
intellectual historian Gary Gerstel on the rise and fall of the neoliberal order. Very interesting uh, conversation with, with Gerstel. It comes up a lot. It's an important book and an important argument. Do you see the seeds of the thinking behind ESA as uh, the origins in, from, in, in terms of school policy of neoliberalism? I, I mean, I certainly do that you do see, you know, I sort of trace the seeds to what I would characterize as sort of this neoliberal order that's sort of affecting education policy back to this, this time period, in part because it tasked the schools with solving uh, this issue. It was fundamentally interpreting social problems through an individualist lens uh, and saying, if we can just provide people with the equitable opportunities, any inequities that exist after the education system, well, we can basically wash our hands of. Uh, so and, it's a kind of treating school as the, the tabula rasa, and then after that, you're on your own, you're on your bicycle, it's you're responsible to make yourself. Exactly. And so while this, you know, on the one hand, does channel billions of dollars of federal funding to uh, the schools, it also solves or tasks them with solving problems that fundamentally they can't. Schools cannot solve the massive offshoring of jobs. Schools cannot solve the, on their own, the declining. Uh, but, that, of, but, but, but Daniel, that goes, doesn't that go without saying? I mean, schools, even if you wanted them to, they couldn't. They, they can't control the architecture of the global economy. They can't control the flow of, uh, the flow of finance. They can't control investments. So, so, so what would have been the alternative? Would it, if we could turn the clock back to 1965 when Lyndon Johnson signed that act with his childhood school teacher, what would have been a better policy? So I think there was debate within his administration. I think uh, sort of the alternative vision came most clearly from his uh, Department of Labor. Secretary Willard Wirtz was arguing that you must have a strong, robust commitment to public jobs uh, if you're interested at all in solving issues like... Uh, why shouldn't that be complementary? I don't understand why it's an either-or. Well, I, I actually think that it should be complementary. However, uh, what we end up, what we see happening is that education gets proposed as the alternative. Uh, so I'll give you an example. And uh, under Johnson's uh, Council of Economic Advisors, they put out a report of uh, sort of Johnson on Johnson's uh, sort of economic plan. And they say, we have it in our power to simply tax ourselves enough to solve the issue of poverty and unemployment. It would only cost about $11 billion. But the reason we're not going to do that is because it would not get at the root cause, which is the lack of individual skills that people are bringing to the marketplace. So what education becomes positioned as, as we can invest here, because this will get at the root cause, which is really about the individual rather than the broader structural environment. Uh, and the, the way that we know that this is happening in education is uh, the Johnson administration under the Elementary Secondary Education Act pursues what is known as the compensatory education strategy, strategy where funding is targeted to low income schools in order to help uh, students and communities break the supposed cycle uh, of poverty. Uh, and it is an individual targeted approach. But I would say, I certainly would never advocate for, as I said earlier, defunding or, or sending less funding to schools. But the reality is that in this moment, education becomes an alternative to that robust investment in the alternative vision. 
Uh, we already brought up Leslie Fenwick's wonderful book on Jim Crow's Pink Slip. How did this affect race and the apartheid education and cultural social system in America in the 1960s? Was this, um, was, was, was Johnson's education reform, was it sufficient to address two, three hundred years of slavery and Jim Crow? Uh, certainly not. But I will say that one of the interesting things here is the degree of disagreement within the sort of black educational scholarship. There was one set, uh, sort of one coalition within black educational scholars that were pushing very much for a strategy like uh, that we end up seeing happening with Johnson's Elementary and Secondary Education Act. So most notably scholars like Kenneth Clark, author of the famous Doll study that's cited in uh, Brown v. Board of Education, uh, Thurgood Marshall himself began to advocate for the types of educational approaches advocated by Johnson uh, and his administration. However, there had always been an alternative vision within Black uh, educational scholars that was arguing that you cannot solve these problems through education uh, alone. What you have to do is focus on the economic system. And you see a debate within Black educational scholars over, should we seek to achieve simply being treated as equals in the status quo, or do we need a fundamental transformation of the economic uh, structures as they exist? Now, one side obviously is much better able to accommodate the moment, uh, which is sort of the side advocated by Thurgood Marshall and Kenneth Clark, which arguing that, yes, all we want is uh, sort of equitable treatment within the status quo. Uh, and so as that side sort of comes to, comes to uh, sort of the forefront, you see a lot of those arguments getting adopted by uh, Johnson and his allies by saying, the investment in education is going to provide this equitable opportunity that has long escaped us. Uh, which sort of sidelines this more uh, radical tradition that was saying, no, you actually have to take on the broader uh, institutional structures that have created this inequity in the first place. I mean, it's an interesting intellectual parlor game. I'm not convinced that um, the alternative was has ever been viable in America, certainly in the mid-1960s. Let's move on um, to another, the other major piece of, uh, legislation that you address in your book, um, uh, George Bush's no, <coughs> excuse me, no, George Bush's, uh, uh, George Bush, the youngers, no voice, uh, no, 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 not no voice, no child <laughs> left behind act of 2001. Here we have a picture of George Bush proudly signing it with a young uh, African-American child, symbolically. Um, ha, ha, uh, the, the, the point of the, or the, the, the long title of the legislation, an act to close the achievement gap with accountability, flexibility, and choice so that no child is left behind. I know you're not a huge fan of this uh, piece of uh, legislation, Daniel. How does it fit into the narrative, to the chronology from Johnson's legislation to Bush's? Well, I mean, first and uh, foremost, uh, the No Child Left Behind is a, a reauthorization of the Elementary Secondary Education Act. So it is just building off of the existing law. Uh, one of the things that uh, sort, of it, sort of extends the rhetoric behind the Elementary and Secondary Education Act to say that not only can schools solve these issues, 
But if they don't, we are prepared to uh, implement sanctions and punishment uh, when they fail to do this. So the most notable uh, examples of this are for schools that do not fail to reach 100% uh, proficiency in uh, uh, both reading and math, then you're going to see a host of sanctions, starting with uh, loss of funding, uh, potentially firing up all teachers at the schools, shutting down the schools uh, completely, and then uh, in some cases transferring uh, uh, running of the school to sort of charter organization. These are incredibly punitive approaches uh, uh, to, again, sort of building off of this idea that schools are not, we see continue to see problems like inequality, poverty, and racial inequality that schools are not solving. And we now have to hold them accountable for their failure to do so. When I would say the broader argument is that they cannot solve these issues and they are reflecting the broader inequalities. So it's a quintessential neoliberal argument that we're going to give you the opportunity to make something of yourself and if you don't and you screw up then we're going to punish you exactly a sort of punitive governmentality uh, orientation toward uh the school system and teachers uh, and one of the things i will say is that uh one of the remarkable aspects of discussions of education in the, this country is the degree to which there is a level of bipartisanship uh, in an era of otherwise extreme partisanship, you do see uh, parties coming together to pass uh, things like the No Child Left Behind Act. I think that picture showed both Ted Kennedy and uh, uh, George W. Bush in the same picture uh, at the signing. Uh, fast forward to sort of the end of the Obama administration, the parties again in an era of extreme partisanship come together to pass the Every Student Succeeds Act, which keeps many of the punitive aspects of No Child I mean, the, the, the wording of these things is so surreal it's almost as if Don DeLillo or something was 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 putting them together the uh, the no child left behind act is of course the reverse most children are left behind the, the one thing about the title of your book Daniel is it's a little bit misleading because when most people went think of from the new deal to the war on schools they'd think of a new deal in which the government was investing in schools to the war on schools but actually your notion of the new deal is when for the most part, the federal government left the schools alone and, it, and, and, and they were controlled and administered and financed locally. Is that fair? Yes, I mean, I think the, uh, so the federal government is not necessarily involved in the day-to-day -day running of, of local schools. I think one of the, the attractive things about the New Deal era to me is the degree to which it was uh, dominated by, uh, to some degree, uh, a progressive vision that centered the uh, value of schools to creating a democratic community. It was not the role of the school simply to prepare the individual for life in the labor market and to sort of uh, be able to earn the greatest return for his or her employer, but the schools themselves performed a democratic function of providing the space for children of all different backgrounds to come together, to grow together, to learn together. And I think that is something that in my discussions with uh, sort of the students that come through my classes is something that is almost completely lost. They tend to look at education in sort of very narrow terms of what is it going to provide me the opportunity to do in the future rather than a value in and of itself. And I would say that is largely a function of 
the both the policy uh, choices of the last 50 years uh, or so and also the ideological hegemony that's uh, mm. it, it, it is one of the core tragedies in America which is not addressed it's sort of in parallel in many ways I think with the health system we did a show uh, with Derek Black um, a year or two ago I thought it was an excellent show uh, a score a, a show on the fate of schools in America. He has, a, I thought, a very good book, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Derek W. Black, another prominent expert on American schools. He paints a very dark vision, um, Daniel, of the current state of schools in America. Do you concur? I assume you see this more historically as a consequence of the failure of this legislation or the corrosive failure. It's not just because the legislation was uh, um, badly implemented. It's the ideological foundations, rather like the universities, did a show also with Charlie Eaton recently about how neoliberalism has, in his words, plundered the universities. He has a new book out, Bankers in the Ivory Tower. I assume that much of this is similar in the American public education system. I mean, I I think that's right. I think it's very well put, and I, I do really like Derek Black's book. I think uh, uh, one of the things that we see happening is when you have these this ideological vision that puts these lofty expectation on schools, you open the door for sort of what we have seen, particularly in the last twenty or thirty years, which is uh, sort of the looting of the public school system by uh, the private sector, in particular, because they begin to adopt these arguments that originated from mm -hmm. liberals, quite frankly, and say, look, these schools are failing our children. And the only way that we can uh, sort of move forward is by getting rid of the public school monopoly. We have to introduce uh, choice. We have to introduce private incentive. That's the only way to improve the situation. So uh, I certainly don't want to make it seem as if it's only like the liberal side of the equation that it is uh, uh, sort of responsible for this, but I do think that they help feed into the broader ideological. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting. I did a bit of research for this. I looked at the Cato Institute site, Cato Institute being a very conservative institute. I don't know if it's neoliberal, but it's certainly conservative. Very, very critical of the no left behind policy as they, as you can see from this screenshot from something that the Cato Institute put out massive increase in federal spending and yet reading scores and math scores and science scores haven't changed at all. And I'm not sure whether those are the kind of metrics, Daniel, that you approve of, but clearly Bush's no, left, uh, no child left behind policy has not resulted in what it promised, has it? Yes. I mean, I think uh, part of this has to be looked at the lens of, well, what was the actual intent? If the intent was to greatly increase the uh, uh, sort of reach of the private sector, uh, decrease the uh, amount of teacher pay and uh, teacher autonomy in the schools. And on that level, from uh, uh, from a certain perspective, then that, that uh, law was certainly a success. In terms of the experience for students and teachers in the schools, I think it's an abject failure. Uh, one interesting thing about that uh, chart that you just put up is it doesn't necessarily break down where the funding is going. And so there's been some great research recently that looks at uh, sort of the amount of funding that the federal government has been pumping into 
uh, sort of charter and private schools, uh, the charter and private school sector. And if you look over the last uh, decade or so, you can see billions of dollars going into uh, that aspect of the education system. And in many cases, those charter schools uh, either stay open for either one or two years or sometimes never even open in the first place. So it had created this opportunity for a tremendous amount of uh, uh, grift uh, to come. Right. Into- I mean, the grift, and of course, we know who the chief grifter is, is perhaps a symbol of our age of grift. And you talk about the war on schools. Um, meanwhile, the education system is uh, a war front on lots of levels. The rich have taken their kids out. Um, they send them to private schools. The charter system, as you suggested, in many ways has decimated the system. So the rich don't care one way or the other. It's rather like the American military. The wealthy, the powerful aren't bothered one way or the other because they don't even see it. Um, uh, more and more of a crisis, more and more of a punitive state. Teachers are poorer and poorer paid, which attracts less and less talent. It's become a front for the culture wars, these absurd wars about what five-year-olds should be taught. And worst of all, it's become quite literal, a war front with the various school shootings. It's a profoundly dystopian situation, isn't it, Daniel? Well, I think it is. I'm, uh, one thing I will say is that uh, uh, the degree to which uh, this is happening in, in the, any individual school is dependent on where in the country uh, you're looking at. And I do think that the experience for relatively well-off uh, communities uh, is quite different than that for... Uh, yeah, I mean, the public school system, for example, I'm in San Francisco, which is very bad. The wealthy send their kids to private schools. But in down the peninsula in Palo Alto, where Stanford University is, Palo Alto High School is one of the best public education schools in the country because it's financed by local tax and local wealthy people. That's exactly right. The uh, uh, it, uh, One of the foundational issues that would have to be changed if we ever wanted to move toward uh, sort of a more equitable system would have to be uh, tackling the uh, the system of, of funding, which right now the about 80 percent, uh, 80 to 90 percent in some cases comes from either state uh, and local uh, taxes, which results in incredible inequities. But uh, just want to give another example. Uh, I went to graduate school in Philadelphia, and this, one of the inspirations for this this uh, uh, this whole book was looking at what was going on in the Philadelphia public school system, where I attended uh, several community meetings when uh, uh, they were shutting down uh, uh, several schools throughout the city that had uh, been pillars of the community. And what was happening was uh, Philadelphia had long sort of been the uh, bugbear of uh, conservatives throughout the state that were upset that they were sending, uh, perceived to be sending so much uh, public money to uh, Philadelphia, uh, which was mostly uh, sort of poor students and predominantly black students. And what you see happening is the state actually took control of the school system away from the city of Philadelphia. Uh, And there's a school reform commission that was appointed by the governor that was in charge of implementing uh, some of these brutal tactics that we were talking about earlier, uh, increasing the number of charters, shutting down uh, uh, longstanding uh, community schools. And there's a degree to which uh, 
people that do not have the ability to push back are subject to the worst of this. Whereas, as you were talking about earlier with the example of uh, Palo Alto, many people uh, sort of in the wealthier areas of the country are not subject to the worst aspect of uh, uh, sort of this punitive education state that we've been discussing. Do you have children yourself? I don't. I think one of the interesting experiences of having children is you go from being an idealist, as we are in this conversation, to practically addressing the issue. So I can talk the talk on this kind of show, but I nonetheless sent my kids to private schools because private high schools, well, my son, not my daughter, uh, because she chose to go to a public high school. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's very hard for parents to think in an objective way here. I mean, they're, they're responsible for enabling their children to make something of themselves. And whatever you say about these vast ar architectural changes, they're not going to happen in our lifetime. It's very unlikely, I think. And so you have to, and I use this word carefully, you have to arm your children for the world as a parent. And so if you can get them into a charter school, if you can get them into a private school, you can't really blame them, can you? Well, certainly, I'd not, I would never blame the uh, the parents for choosing that. I mean, no, I, I'm not saying you have. I'm just sort of addressing how tricky this is, even for progressives who believe in this stuff. When it comes to where they send their kids to school, they're as vulnerable as anyone else to playing the system and benefiting their children. Yes, I, I, I think that would point to the broader need to change the system, and I don't think you do that through through individual choices. So. Well, some people might say it might be morally laudable, I don't know, questionable to send their kids to public schools if there are terrible results there. I think what my sort of broader perspective would be is that there needs to be a call to action to change uh, sort of the broader structures of government. And uh, yeah, but they're, they're, you're a bit vague, I have to say. I mean, I agree with your critique, but you've got to be a bit more concrete. I, I went to the Biden-Harris White House fact sheet. Of course, they're promising to advance educational equity, whatever that means. A couple of final questions, Daniel. What, if anything, has the Biden-Harris administration done with this? And secondly, what can we realistically do? Let's say Biden-Harris gets reelected again for another four years, so we've got a six-year runway, or, or Harris is elected, or Newsom is elected. What can be done realistically without fundamentally re-architecting the American economic system, which is just simply not going to happen. So uh, I think on the the Biden uh, Harris administration front, they have most of the first year was spent uh, sort of Miguel Cardona's uh, was focused mostly on uh, sort of reopening schools and getting resources to schools to deal with the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic. More recently, they have been sending uh, more funding for things like school nurses, uh, counselors. Uh, they have been advocating for uh, a broad increase in funding for uh, for public schools, as well as increasing uh, access to uh, pre-K. But most of that funding was tied up with the Build Back Better uh, bill, which has basically been torpedoed by uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and, and appears to have little prospect uh, of passing. Uh, there have been some discussion about the Biden administration focusing on uh, sort of reducing student debt at coming from higher education. That is still very much uh, up in the air. 
Uh, to your your sort of second question, which is what is realistic? Uh, I mean, I, I take the point. Uh, I guess I would say that uh, this is a, a situation that took a long time to get into, and it's going to take a long time to get out of. There are no sort of quick fixes here that either the Biden-Harris uh, administration could do uh, in its remaining two years or uh, Newsom or whoever uh, could do in, in the following year. And I think the responsibility of uh, progressives or, or those that sort of view the world like I do is to begin organizing uh, to sort of make the case for the, this broader change. And that is something that is going to take a tremendous uh, amount of time. Uh, the uh, If there were a quick fix, uh, I think uh, it would have happened already, but this is something that's going to take uh, a long time and uh, progressives need to steal themselves. Uh, uh, to that reality and begin the hard work of organizing to make that a uh, reality. A critic, Daniel, might say, well, you're just simply ignoring the issue. You're not addressing the reality and you can put this thing off until kingdom comes, but it's never going to happen. So you're basically just saying, well, there's not much we can do. We can't change the system and the system's worthless. So let's just leave it as it is. Well, so I would say there's a couple of things that could immediately be done, but the, the reality is we have to have a sort of political organization that's capable of holding leaders accountable. And right now we don't have that. In terms of what I would immediately advocate, I would say that the focus needs to be uh, on uh, sort of making sure that people have uh, access to uh, access, uh, actual access to good paying jobs at a living wage, which the federal government could step up and do uh, immediately. That would go a tremendous way towards addressing things like poverty, income inequality, racial inequality, uh, these universal programs that the federal government could potentially do, uh, right now do not have uh, sort of a political organization uh, behind it that's capable of, of pushing that. And the, the Democratic Party simply is not there, which is why uh, I would say being realistic, you do have to think about how do we get there uh, uh, in the long term. I mean, and just to say, uh, so to provide a counterexample, I think you could make a, a similar case to uh, conservatives uh, back in the uh, sort of uh, aftermath of the Roe decision saying, well, this is the political reality. It's very unlikely that things are going to change in your, your lifetime. But the response was to begin to organize and seek out ways that they could go about making their preferred political reality come into fruition. And you see that was a project that took uh, 50 years. It is something that I am sort of quite horrified by, but I do think that in the prospect for long-term political change, it is something that potentially progressives can take inspiration from. And it all comes down then perhaps to politics and reorganization, rethinking from the New Deal to the war on schools, race inequality, and the rise of the punitive education state by Daniel S. Merck. It's a really interesting book about one of the most important issues most misunderstood issues in America, one we choose to kind of avoid or only talk in generalities and simplicities about. Daniel does anything but that. So congratulations, Daniel, on the book. Uh, as he said, it's just out uh, from the New Deal to the War on Schools. Anyone interested in this subject, it's a must read, uh, like some of the other books we've discussed in this show. Uh, what else are you reading, Daniel, these days uh, to keep yourself optimistic and hopeful of the future, or perhaps pessimistic, who knows? Well, I would say I have to be optimistic because I think it's a political dead end to uh, to be uh, pessimistic, but there's a couple of books I, I would recommend. One is uh, Toure Reed's uh, Towards Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, 
uh, and a book by uh, his father, uh, Adolf Reed, uh, The South, Jim Crow and His Afterlives, which I think are both brilliant uh, accounts of uh, uh, sort of the role of race in the 20th century. Uh, and the third is a really interesting manuscript that I just read by uh, uh, Sarah Kate called The Myth of the Community Fix, which is really a sort of brilliant examination of the pitfalls of the uh, uh, sort of uh, juvenile justice reformers embracing uh, community-based reforms, the, the pitfalls and shortfalls of that approach, which I imagine will be out either later this year or next year. So something to keep an eye out for.